Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for people in North Central Florida and beyond. They're passionate about it, and it's something that is a very big part of life right now for people in Micanopy. Strickland said the Athletic Association was made aware of complaints within the program during the first two years. So a lot of people were going in and not knowing what they were getting, but just knowing that they were getting an affordable house and trusting that the federal government was giving them a good deal. <laughs> this is The Rewind from WFT News, a look at some of the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write the stories. I'm your host today, Ariana Spiru, and let's dive into the stories from this week. Micanopy residents are divided on the decision to build a Dollar General off of U.S. Route 441. Producer Kristen Moorhead spoke with WFT reporter Juliana Ferry about how the debate is more complex than it seems. The Dollar General, even though the address itself is not technically on Tuscaloosa Road, um, in the article it's, you know, the address is listed as on U.S. Highway 441, but to get to the Dollar General is you have to access Tuscaloosa Road. And Tuscaloosa Road is this two-lane, beautiful road that was designated earlier in April as a scenic road. And what that means is it's more protected now. That means that trucks that are that weigh more than 50,000 pounds cannot drive down the road. So this presents an issue for Dollar General in terms of developing the site because their trucks are heavier than 50,000 pounds, which is why they wanted the scenic road variance request from the county. Now, residents of the area are against the Dollar General being in the spot because it's located near, basically right next to um, Tuscaloosa Preserve, which is home to a lot of different animals. It is a very big, interesting ecosystem, very complex ecosystem. And it's also right across from the preserve is also the Micanopy Native American Heritage Preserve, which has a lot of sacred areas for Native Americans like the Alachua Tradition Burial Mound. So even though a lot of residents are in favor of a Dollar General they don't think that this is the right spot for it. A big portion of your story revolves around the importance of this land to indigenous populations in Florida. Tell me a little bit about why this land is so important for Native Americans in Alachua County. Yeah, so I spoke to Robert Rosa, and he is a member of a couple of organizations that are working really around the country to kind of bring awareness to issues involving social justice for Native Americans. And one of those is that a lot of development often goes over, you know, Native American burial mounds. And those Native American burial um, mounds, excuse me, are very sacred to them and very important to them because they use it they to honor their ancestors. There are as I mentioned in my article, he talked a lot about how when he travels places, including this burial mound in Micanopy, they honor their ancestors with different items, specifically food and flowers and tobacco, which is considered sacred to them. And it's a really important thing. He told me about how it's very important to them to honor them in this way because of all the sacrifices that 
they made for them to get to where they are today. And, you know, without them, he said that they wouldn't be where they are. And so it's just a matter of, you know, paying respect for those who came before them. And that's, you know, what he, he talked a lot about. And it's, it's super important to them that those areas are respected. What are some of the arguments for building this Dollar General in this location? Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to talk to one individual about his thoughts on why there should be a Dollar General. And, um, you know, there are other people in the community that agree with him as well. It's definitely a split issue. And he basically talks about how Micanopy is, you know, it's hard for people. Um, it's, it's an area where things are a bit spread out. And he thinks that having the Dollar General in the area would give those with that, you know, have a lower income and opportunity to get staple goods in a location that is easily accessible compared to other grocery stores or places you know, in the city or the community that you really need transportation to get to. So his argument was, you know, that people kind of assume that everyone has transportation and that's not always the case. So in his mind, he thinks the Dollar General in that location is great because it'll give, you know, people the opportunity to walk to it. It's more accessible. You could bike to it and it provides a place for cheap goods that people need. How long has this debate been going on? So according to a copy of the request for relief that I have, which I mentioned in the article itself, it says that Concept Companies, which is the developer for the Dollar General, first submitted their preliminary development plans June 1st of 2020. And I'm sure there were discussions going on before that because, you know, they have this land that they've been, they have a purchase contract for. So that's when they first started they first submitted their plans to the county. And from there, it's just kind of taken off. They had different meetings until then. And then on on April 27th of 2021 is when the road was designated as a scenic road, which changed the criteria for the trucks, which is what is now ongoing between the two is with the court case to review that decision because after April 27th, they submitted the scenic road variance request on June 15th, 2021. And that's the decision that's being reviewed legally that they want to have reviewed so that they can use their trucks on the road. You know, there's so many different aspects to the story, but at the heart of it, why do you feel like it's important to report on this story specifically? So this story really captured my attention because I could tell how passionate everybody was about this issue. No matter what side they stood on, they're passionate about it. And it's something that is a very big part of life right now for people in Micanopy. The Micanopy residents, this is something that they are extremely passionate about and they are very they very much want to, many of them, protect the land and the history. And I kind of saw it and I, as we've talked about, this is a really complex story. There's a lot of things going on with it. There's, you know, there's the emotion of it. There's the technical side of it. There's the legal side of it. And I didn't even realize when I started working on it just how much 
was going into into this and what all was behind it. And I think it just really, I think on the surface, people might look in and, and say, well, you know, it's just the Dollar General. What 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 else is going on there? And not really understand the true extent of, you know, what what what's happening there. I know at first I didn't either. And then I really, you know, I got to talk to so many members of the community with so many different perspectives. And I think it's just a very, very big matter that's going on in McKinope that really deserved coverage and different voices to have their opportunity to share more on what on their thoughts. That was producer Kristen Moorhead speaking with WFT reporter Juliana Ferry on her story surrounding the debate on building a Dollar General off of U.S. Route 441. We'll be right back. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WFT. A recent story from the independent Florida alligator is making national headlines. In a story published earlier this week, several former women's basketball players detail abuse by their former coach Cam Neubauer during his tenure from 2017 to 2021. Producer Melissa Fato spoke to Zachary Huber, an assistant sports editor at The Alligator, who began reporting this story after Neubauer resigned this July, citing personal reasons. He soon got connected to a number of players who alleged Neubauer verbally abused and physically intimidated them. He begins by summarizing Neubauer's career at the University of Florida. Coach Cam Neubauer, he was the coach at Florida from 2017 to July of this season. Um, He replaced a former coach, Amanda Butler, who took the Florida women's basketball program to four NCAA tournaments and had a pretty solid winning percentage, but Cam Neubauer failed to make the NCAA tournament in any of his seasons and never had a winning season. But um, some of the things that the players accused him of, he was accused of making racist remarks, throwing basketballs at players during practices, and verbally abusing the team, assistant coaches, and trainers. I would like for you to tell us the story of some of the players. So could you kind of introduce us to these women and their experiences? To, I guess, start from the beginning, to add to Cindy Morang, um, she played at Florida for two seasons. Um, her last season was Neubauer's first season in 2017, 2018. She had to retire because she suffered from several concussions over the course of her basketball career. Um, then there's Haley Lorenzen, who was the captain of the 2017-2018 team. Um, then there's also the three freshmen during that Neubauer's first season that played a really pivotal role in the story because they basically, when we got the tip from Cindy Morang's parents, originally that kind of led us to this whole reporting, this started this whole reporting process. They said that they were pushed out and they committed to sign under committed and signed to play under former coach Butler and coach Neubauer just kind of wanted a clean slate but 
their names were um, Michaela Hayes, who's now at Xavier, I believe, Tamaria Johnson, who's now at Delaware, and then um, finally Jalisha Thomas, who is now at LSU. Then there's also Sydney Searcy, who's now at Morgan State. I think she was a sophomore, I want to say, during Neubauer's first season. And finally, the last person that we cited in the story that I directly talked to was on Sydney Kinslow. She was a graduate transfer on the 2020-2021 team. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the first student that you profile in your reporting. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't able to talk to Michaela Hayes personally, but I talked to her mom and just when she saw her daughter Michaela at that Savannah at the Savannah Invitational and during Thanksgiving of 2017, she noticed a change in her daughter right away. Like her personality changed a little bit. Like she wasn't as like outgoing. She was a really skinny kid and she said that she's put on weight and her face was broken out with acne as well. I think one of the most powerful quotes in the story happened to be in the lead. Just um, I'll read it for the listeners out there. You know how you hear about people in abusive relationships and how they're broken and they're almost a shell. He broke my child. She was truly broken and he beat her down and she didn't want me to say anything because she thought it would get worse. You say that it's not just necessarily students and the players themselves who allegedly suffered, but the staff as well. Could you speak more on that? He, to quote Sydney Searcy, she said that Cam Coach Neubauer treated his assistant coaches like peasants. Like he treated them like they weren't worth anything, like they didn't have much to add. There was one um, scenario or one anecdote that I had in the story where uh, assistant coach was talking to the team and was just saying like, hey, like you guys need to do this and just trying to help them out. And coach Cam Neubauer just kind of cut cut her cut her off and just said like, hey, like shut up. And I didn't include this in the story, but she kind of spoke back to him like, hey, do not talk to me this way. But it was just things like that. It was a common scene to see coaches crying because the way they were being treated, they were just really belittled and really spoken to in a disrespectful manner. Right. So the alligator and you broke this story. Can you tell me about how you began reporting it? Um. So I guess it started back in July. So Cam Neubauer officially resigned and became public on July 16th, the summer. And we followed the Gators women's basketball account on Twitter and they announced the news. And we noticed some comments that like a lot of comments from fans like saying like, oh, no, I hope he's OK, because he said he resigned due to personal reasons. But there was comments like, for example, we coded on um, this player's father, Autry Johnson. She He was the father of Ariel Johnson, who played from 2018 to 2020. And um, he just said, like, hey, UF is lucky they didn't get sued. Like, Ariel would still be there be there if Coach Newbert wasn't there, basically implying that. And just, there were, it seemed like there were several people in the know, like, hey, there was something going on behind the scenes. And I believe my editors at the time noticed that, and they pointed out, they noticed it first. And they shared it with me after we got this tip from Lynn and Frank Morang, Cindy Morang's parents. They told us they wanted to meet with one of our reporters to talk about their experience under Neubauer. They said they sent a letter to Scott Strickland in April of 2018. We wrote about that in the piece. Strickland emailed back three hours later. Um, but that's where it really started. And then we, I interviewed their daughter. And then that she helped me connect with some other players as well. So has there been any response from Neubauer? No, I've called him three, four times over the weekend and we never heard anything back from him. 
the only comment we've gotten back is from UF. He's made multiple statements. Right. So I was going to ask that next, that this past week, Athletic Director Scott Strickland did make a statement, although notably the alligator was not included in that meeting. Um, what did he say? He released a, a statement Monday afternoon. Strickland said the Athletic Association was made aware of complaints within the program during the first two years, but took and tried to put more structure around the program and was under the impression the situation was improving. However, Strickland said another situation later made it clear those improvements weren't being made and Neubauer stepped away from the program. Just then he spoke to reporters and like they released a statement to us after the meeting. Strickland said, we as a department have a responsibility to provide our student athletes leadership for their particular programs, their sports. We are going to provide them with the best atmosphere possible and we failed in this situation. Ultimately, that's my responsibility for the culture of this department. I'll take full responsibility for that. Had I been aware of everything at the time he resigned, that when I made the contract extension, I never would have had done the contract extension. I thought things were moving in a certain direction. Obviously, we weren't. We didn't pick up signs and clues, and we got to figure out going forward how to get better and make sure we know what's going on. And my last question is, I guess, what's next? To answer that question, I think the next step is just to keep reporting and keep digging because there may be more to the story. Like, for example, Kinslow's alleged alleged that the interim head coach, Kelly Ray Finley, covered up and did damage control for what Neubauer did. And just she would call players in the middle of the night and just say, like, hey, he doesn't mean what he said. Like, I don't want to pick a side of what where Finley was because I can see both sides. She can also be a victim in this scenario and also a perpetrator. But it'll be interesting to see just, like, Interesting to see how the players react. Do the players feel like they were heard and that UF is taking them seriously now and are going to get a coach that they that will treat them with a lot of respect and treat them like human beings? They just named Finley the interim head coach. I mm-hmm. believe Strickland said they're going to do a coaching search at the end of the season. But, I mean, Finley still has a chance. This is an audition for her. Like, if the team plays well and the players love her and respond to her, but this is her chance if she – succeeds and the team does play as well and the players and parents seem to like her I, she could potentially get the job is there anything else that you think is important to this story in this moment that we didn't cover i have to give a lot of credit to the players who spoke out because it takes a lot of courage and just for any player that's listening or read my story like know that you guys have a voice and don't like if you're experiencing similar things don't be afraid to speak up That was producer Melissa Fato speaking with Zachary Huber, an assistant sports editor at the Independent Florida Alligator. To read his story and keep up with any updates, visit alligator.org. We'll be right back. Big ideas are reshaping our world from our jobs. If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? to what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. You're listening to The Rewind from WFT News. 
Florida is a hotspot for government-sold homes in flood zones, according to a recent investigation by NPR. The report found that homes in flood zones sold by the Department of Housing and Urban Development were 75 times the rate of those sold nationwide. Producer Sarah Mandel spoke with WFT reporter Jack Prater, who localized the national story to see how this is impacting North Central Florida homeowners. To start us off, could you just give me a general overview of your story? Sure. So about a week ago, NPR came out with an investigation into uh, the Federal Housing and Urban Development Department, uh, and they found that the HUD disproportionately sells homes in flood zones to households uh, with lower incomes. So NPR found 529 properties over the last three or four years were sold in flood zones, and they took a look and compared that against Zillow sales. So uh, NPR found that HUD sold these homes in flood zones at about 70 times the rate of homes sold nationally, according to Zillow statistics. And this comes as prices, home prices are rising in flood zones and on the coast in Miami, we saw what happened uh, over the summer. And in Homestead, just outside of Miami, uh, median home prices outside of flood zones are rising in an area which used to be pretty affordable. So there's this push uh, where people are leaving coastal zones that used to be super expensive. Uh, and I mean, they still are expensive, but as climate change is worsening and as flood zones and water levels are creeping up, uh, it's pushing people uh, more inland. And here's HUD going and selling these homes in flood zones uh, cheap while, while they can still sell them. Gotcha. So how did you localize this story to North Central Florida? Right. So with WFT being an NPR affiliate, they sent us their sort of master spreadsheet of all these homes. And I went and found which homes were in our coverage area and came up with a localized version of the story. Uh, so there were about 15 homes in flood zones in North Central Florida. And I went to, I think, almost all of them, minus maybe a couple <laughs> that were pretty far out uh, and just knocked on doors and talked to the homeowners, asked them how they bought the homes if they knew they were in flood zones, because at least at the national level of this story, a lot of people didn't know that they were in flood zones when the homes were sold to them. Um, but everybody that I talked to knew what they were getting into. Okay. What were some of the experiences of the homeowners you spoke to? A lot of these homes were in minimal flood zones um, at, that didn't see too much flooding or, or too much danger, which was good. I think I opened with this, I think I opened the story talking to a man who lived or rented a, a mobile home in Trenton, which is a city in Gilchrist County with about 2000 people. So a really small place. He said he'd lived there his whole life in that neighborhood. Um, but definitely, it was definitely a low income area. And as I drove a couple hours to Weirsdale, Florida, uh, these were places where people were buying, making cash offers on houses and buying on the spot. Uh, to fix up because all these HUD homes are sold as is, which means the government won't fix or do anything to these houses. You buy them and you get to deal with uh, with fixing it up yourself, which a lot of these people wanted. They wanted a cheap house that they could renovate and do whatever they wanted with. I talked to a man in Weirsdale who also had a lake on his property and he he could only build on half of the property because of that. Yeah, one of your sources was Mark Clark. 
a wetland ecology professor at UF. What did he have to say about flooding in Florida? Professor Clark talked a lot about risk and how risk is increasing in these areas because hundred, he said 100-year flood zones uh, might now be five-year flood zones in some areas. And the gist was that as sea level rises and as we keep developing in areas where we probably shouldn't be, we're running that risk. And the risk is, I think there was a quote of him saying that risk is now becoming unacceptable because it's so high. But he also sort of just gave a breakdown of how climate change works um, in this case. And he said, as the atmosphere is getting warmer, it's holding more moisture and that's causing more rainfall. And with that rainfall, it's, it's harder to drain and it's affecting these properties in particular. So the, the frequency of floods is increasing, but also the range of the flood zones are. So that, that flood zone that might've been 10 miles wide is now going up. So, and also the federal government, federal government has its own flood zones uh, that they have for each county all outlined online. Uh, but scientists and experts are saying that these flood zones are outdated and have their own resources and own uh, maps and charts that they've sort of put together saying this is what the flood zone really is and this is the direction that it's heading in the next few years. Gotcha. Yeah, you were also able to talk to a manager at a realty company in Alachua City. What did she have to say about buying houses from the Department of Housing and Urban Development? So yeah, so when I spoke to Patricia Moser at, at the realty company, uh, the biggest thing that she drove home is that home buyers should be doing their own inspections. They should be purchasing their own inspections because the word she used was HUD doesn't do their own due diligence. Um, they have someone who is licensed by them as an inspector or certified by them and comes in and checks the property. But again, in a lot of these cases outside of North Central Florida, inspectors and HUD weren't telling home buyers that they were in flood zones. So the only way to, I guess the only way for home buyers or the best way for home buyers to really know what they're getting into is to pay to have their own uh, inspections done. And when you're selling to low income uh, home buyers and when you're selling to people who are buying these houses at very affordable prices, a lot of the times they're not going to go ahead and pay that extra price or that extra fee for the inspection. Um, so a lot of people were going in and not knowing what they were getting, but just knowing that they were getting an affordable house and trusting that the federal government was giving them a good deal. <laughs> right. Were you able to speak with anyone from HUD for your article? Yeah, so I, I did reach out uh, to HUD the week before the story aired and was posted. Uh, and I heard back from a spokesman, um, Michael Burns. He uh, sent me an email back, uh, but it was sort of a, a cookie cutter response. Uh, a lot of the NPR stories and a lot of the localized version of, of this story uh, did speak to spokesmen. Um, and I think that HUD has definitely heard the story. <laughs> and I, I think that they seem to be pretty receptive to it. Um, they said that they were going to be working with FEMA uh, to work this out and come up with new policies to, to address the issue. 
I think it was just good to hear that they were taking this seriously. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Seeing migration patterns across Florida and where people are moving out of inland, um, I think that is something that's just going to get bigger as as climate change becomes more of an issue. Um, and again, yeah, just seeing what HUD does in response to this and if, if they decide to change any practices or, or change policies to address uh, what's been going on for the last few years. <laughs> That was producer Sarah Mandel speaking with WFT reporter Jack Prater about his story concerning local homes sold in flood zones. Make sure to join us next Sunday when we'll be showcasing the best stories from WFT News. The Rewind is produced by Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandel, Ariana Spuru, and Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Ariana Spru. Thank you for listening.